Welcome to the Research Reimagine podcast, brought to you by Nottingham Trent University. I'm your host, Helen Darby-Dowman, and I'll be inviting some of NTU's brightest minds to explore how their research is helping us to deepen our understanding of the world. From online addictions to transgender rights and sleep disorders, listen as we discuss some of society's most pressing challenges and uncover some of the ways our research is making a difference. Serial killers and their stories seem to be more popular than ever. Not just fictional characters like Hannibal Lecter and Dexter, but real-life killers too. The true crime genre has really taken off over recent years, following the release of documentaries and podcasts like Making a Murderer, Case File and Serial. These shocking stories attract widespread debate and public attention, and fans can spend hours studying the history and facts behind each case. As a population, we're as fascinated about serial killers as we are fearful. But what motivates serial killers and why are we so fascinated by their stories? To help answer these questions, I'm pleased to be joined by Serena Simmons, Chartered Psychologist and Senior Lecturer here at NTU and a lead researcher in the recent Amazon Prime series, Cops That Kill. Hi, Serena. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me in. We just start by giving us a little bit of background about yourself um, and, and how you got into the research. I think you've done a great job of introducing me already actually thank you um as you've said my background is really in serial violent offending with a particular focus on serial murder although as I've progressed in my career I'm very very interested in researching what I call the dark and the light so spend a lot of my time now looking at positive psychology and peak performance but still do the vast majority of my work here at NTU looking at that darker side so kind of staying in the area of murder what actually got you interested in the first place in that sort of darker side? I've always, I think since being a kid, I don't want to go back too far and bore you, but since I was a child, I've been really interested in that dark and that light. So in other words, why do we do what we do? And why do some people choose to do things that are really positive and really good with any particular motivation that they have? But there's also that other side of the spectrum where people are driven to do really bad things, essentially. Um, and so very early on in my career, when I studied at university, like lots of people are, I did my BSc in psychology and a BA in criminology. And those two areas of interest really came together. And I think it was um, really a couple of lecturers that I had while I was at uni that really inspired me to want to go more into the work, actually. And you've recently been involved in the series Cops Who Kill. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you got involved in that and a bit about what entailed? I've been really, really fortunate actually. So quite early on in my career, I was asked to do um, some radio. So this is about 17 years ago. I mean, I've been here for 17 years at Trent, so I feel like a part of the furniture. Um, And my profile was stumbled across by someone in the media. And really since then, I've done a lot of media work. And I'd say... um, the vast majority of my work in this area of murder and serial murder particularly is now media-based and media-based profiling. So it started all those years ago working, doing a lot of work for the BBC, both local um, and then it grew to kind of the more mainstream channels. Um, And since then I've written for lots of kind of main newspapers, media, um, and I think it really it was because of a really popular podcast on BBC Sounds last year that got, I think, into the top 10 um, podcasts. And I think through all of those things, really, I was found and asked to do the programme. So really, really fortunate. Um, but yeah, because of all that history of doing that media work, really. Can you tell us a little bit about the series and kind of what what I guess we were finding out about these 
these cops that kill about murder, about serial murders. Yeah, it was a really fascinating documentary to be a part of. And that's what lured me in was it was very different. They had a very particular focus on that kind of offender. Um, Again, really fortunate to be asked. And my main job was to really profile those eight police officers who killed um, and what you'll find in the series, if you've watched it or if anyone who's interested, is there are eight episodes and every episode focuses on one particular police officer who's killed. For the most part, um, that I mean, they're all single murderers, they're not serial, but much of the theory and um, the research around murder kind of still fits to some degree when you're looking at those kinds of offenders. Um each of those people killed one person. For the most part, they were sadly a spouse or partner. And there were another couple, one being um, the murder of someone connected to another crime who wasn't essentially a stranger, but someone known to that police officer. And then sadly, the other case was probably a case that most people know, which is the case of Wayne Cousins, who killed Sarah Everard, which is a very well-known case from that kind of first COVID year that we had here in the UK. Um, so he was the first case that I profiled for the programme. Can you talk to me a little bit about um, why you think... So why, why do we find repeat murderers? Like, what is it about their motivation? What happens in their minds when they commit such violent crimes? How long have we got on the podcast <laughs> to talk about this? Um, it's interesting because you've touched upon two things there. It's a kind of single murderer and also serial. Why would someone do it again, essentially? So... It's really important to look at each offender individually to try and get an idea of motive for that particular person. What you'll find is when someone's killed someone as a one-off event, um, it can be a multitude of reasons why someone's killed that person. We wouldn't have time to kind of cover all the ground. It can be opportunistic. It can be in self-defense. It can be, yes, because they've planned it. Um, for revenge so there's there's many many different reasons why someone might do something as a one-off event and I think most people can almost put themselves in the mindset of how that might happen in some cases when you see those single murders happen I think what we struggle to understand um, more so would be the serial offender who does it again and again and again and we want to know why and again we have to look at those on an individual basis but what you're looking at is some urge um, to kill and the urge and the satisfaction from killing once is not enough they have to do it again for a particular reason and that's when we do go to the research to try and figure out why um, and there are lots of typologies that help us try and make sense of why that might happen. Can you share with us some of that I mean like do they have similar traits I mean you're sort of saying that they do they've got to have some sort of personality traits psychological impacts they've had is, is it something that goes back in their life just give us a little bit of an insight into maybe some of the reasons why people repeat offenders in such a violent way. Yeah, it's, it is hard to condense really quickly. I'm sure you get lots of people say that on this podcast. They can't reduce all of this down into a, a bite-sized nugget. Um, and I'd be loath to say that any one typology or one piece of research kind of fits all. But when you look at typologies, what we try and do is, is bring them into broader categories to try and make sense of potential motive for wanting to do that. The Holmes and Holmes um, typology is one that I go back to again and again, or Holmes and de Berger, which lots of people in the field will know about. And if you don't, go and read them. Uh, there's lots to read in that area. Um, and in that typology, we split them into four categories. So visionary, missionary, um, hedonistic, and power and control. So even just with those labels, you get a sense of what's going on. 
I think what we're trying to do in those early typologies, when you're looking at, for example, the visionary killer, often you are looking at some kind of pathology or disease. Um, so we're interested in, is there something there that's causing it in terms of mental illness? Again, we have to be very careful when we look at that because it's not a reason or an excuse. But we do often see that disorganised offender, someone who clearly maybe isn't aware of what they're doing completely. Um, and there is an obvious pathology there. Um, the missionary killer, so someone who wants to, for example, rid the world of a particular group of people, so they will continue to seek out those people from that group and kill them again and again. So it might be people of a particular colour, race or religion. Um, often prostitutes, sadly, are a target with those particular groups as well, as they are with many other groups, actually, because they're very vulnerable people. Um, you get the hedonistic, where you have someone who's very interested in the thrill of doing what they're doing. They get off on the, let's just say, the broad gratification of the act and then the power and control. Um, to kind of put some names to that, to make sense of those last two, because they're the ones that people often focus on in the media. So um, the hedonistic um, offender would be very typical um, of someone like um, Jeffrey Dahmer. So had a very kind of sexual element to the crime, enjoyed the act of committing the crime um, and liked to take time with the body. I'm not, I don't know how much detail to go into here, so I'm going to try and keep it <laughs> certificate 15. Um, and then the power and control killer. So someone like Ted Bundy, who liked the control that he had over his victims and would, again would want to um, maybe, for example, strangle someone, revive them, strangle. So the, the control of having that person under their grasp in their power and knowing that they control whether they live or die. So you get a sense of the fact that typologies and categories help us to understand, broadly speaking, what might be going on a little bit behind the scenes. And do you see sort of patterns across all of those typologies? Are they are there similar patterns that, that evolve? Yeah, I mean, obviously, like any good psychologist, you have to be critically minded of things like this. It's not a one size fits all. And there's a lot of critique, even for those types of typologies. And certainly kind of modern theory would say that at one time or another, any one of those killers could kind of slip into another category for a moment and kind of you'll see mirroring in, in all of those types of typologies. So they're certainly not crystal clear. Um, and that's what makes it really evasive and often very, very difficult to research. The other reason it's difficult and very fortunately so is we don't have many people to interview um, and to research. So obviously trying to gather information and make sense of what's going on um, is difficult. Certainly when you look at things, for example, um, Harold Shipman, one of the most notorious serial killers that we had here in the UK, had we been able to interview him, we may know more, but sadly he committed suicide when he was in prison. So we don't know. So, you know, trying to make sense of it is often retrospective. Um, and also we're going on what they tell us, which in and of itself is an issue. That's what I was about to ask you, actually, was about how do you actually carry out the research? Um, you talked about, obviously, interviewing people. Can you give us a bit of an insight into how, as psychologists, you you work out what's going on? And, and how do you know when someone's telling the truth or not? Do you have, you know, just, just share a bit of that with us? Again, it really depends on the type of offender that you're working with, that you're interacting with. Certainly, when there's 
evidence of some pathology or, um, for example, a personality disorder, how you might approach someone with a disorder is very different to how you might approach someone and work with someone who doesn't have a disorder of some kind. Um, so first of all, you have to have a very rigorous process in terms of diagnosis and assessment just to make sure that they are um, that there's no pathology there or disorder, disease, etc. Um, and then really it's just trying to fit those jigsaw pieces together. It's going on previous knowledge. It's taking a really, really in-depth case history. It's looking at all of the crimes individually and together and trying to look for patterns. It is working off the back of research where people have been able to go and inter interview those people, but for a very long time. So consistently over years, gathering information. Most serial offenders that are incarcerated are in the States. Uh, for the most part, they are going to be executed. So the time that people have with them to research them and certainly access to those people is tricky anyway. And I think most reading that you'll find on those people, I think is quite anecdotal. So it's usually books written by people who've been able to get in an interview um, and I'm not entirely sure about how credible all of that is because it's not peer reviewed. It's just it's a book because it's opinion based. So we do have to be really mindful of how we address that. I find it really interesting that serial killers can be a bit glamorised. And I know you were talking about that a little bit earlier when we were just having a, a conversation. Can you just talk to me a little bit about how does that happen? Why do they suddenly become kind of people that others want to engage with and become fascinated with? Why are we so fascinated with serial killers? It's a really tricky one. It's, I think it's also a fine line because arguably I was fascinated by them, which is why I entered the field. So we have to be mindful of the difference between a fascination that um, induces a healthy fascination where we want to understand something and make a difference um, versus it slipping into something a bit more macabre. Um, I want to say, are you fascinated by them? Do you find them interesting? I think I, f I find it interesting to know why. I, I want to understand why they do. I suppose that answers the question. What I don't understand, I think, is those that become, they fall in love with them. They want to actually be, you know, be with them and, and can see themselves in a relationship. And when we hear about that, and I think you were mentioning, you know, letters that are written and so forth. I find that a... A strange concept. Yeah, and I think that's the point that we're trying to make. I'm probably doing it at the same time together. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think again, we. It's. I think it's normal to have a healthy fascination in some ways because we are drawn to wanting to understand other human beings. It's why we have Big Brother. It's why we have I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. It's why we have Love Island. We want to know what people are doing, what they're doing behind the scenes, little snippets of everyday life. What do you do? What's your normal? Am I normal if I think and feel that way and behave that way? So it's normal for human beings to be curious about other human beings. And there's a kind of an evolutionary slant on that too. It makes sense for us to understand others and to want to then make sense of ourselves. Um, but as you've alluded to, it can slip into a darkness, a, a, an understanding that becomes then something very, very different, a, 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 like a macabre kind of fascination with someone where people then want to become close to somebody, to befriend them, to even have a relationship with them. And I think that then starts to say more about that person and potentially their own issues, which need possibly addressing, to say that kindly. Um, 
that maybe then they need to look at themselves and their behavior. But I think, you know, don't berate yourself. I think I meet most people who, when they find out what I do, say, oh, I'm fascinated by that. And I understand that. I, you know, don't, I don't judge people for that. I understand where that comes from. But again, if you notice yourself slipping into obsession and then maybe wanting to have a pen pal behind bars, then maybe, maybe rethink that, that action before you, you take it. As someone that has obviously sat in front of many offend like murderers serial murderers what is it like like you know how difficult is that is it is it an easy process to be honest with you you know I did lots of fortunately I did lots of work in practice before I even studied so I'm one of those lecturers here at the university who worked for a good decade before they qualified um, and went to university so I had a lot of experience working already with um, people in um, different mental health facilities, forensic settings. So I had a lot of experience already working in those settings. Um, so I was able to put practice to theory, which I think is a really beautiful combination to be able to bring that to life, especially when you're teaching, actually, because um, I've worked in the area for so long. That being said, going into a maximum secure hospital was a very different feeling for me. Um, so I worked at Rampton Hospital before I became a lecturer. Um, and you have to do a good two to three weeks training before you're allowed to even set foot in the hospital. And that really sets the scene for how serious you need to be in that particular setting and how important it is that you know how to work with those people. Um, so I took it very, very seriously. And had a healthy um, anxiety around going onto the wards, which I think is needed because you need to have your wits about you and to be very, very careful and to take security incredibly seriously. Um, I remember my dad saying to me, they are behind a glass pane, aren't they? And I said, yes, dad, they are. And they're absolutely not. I mean, you're in a room with them one-on-one -on -one and you just have an alarm on your on your person that you're to set off if anything happens um so that did take some getting used to to start with for sure and then doing group kind of therapeutic work as well when you're in a room with maybe two or three staff members and nine offenders um takes some getting used to but like any job it becomes your norm it sounds very intimidating to me but I, I suppose as you said you're trained to do it and you're in a really so bizarrely it, you do feel incredibly safe in many ways because the staff are so well trained you feel equipped and well trained but again I think to have that healthy anxiety is important so that you do take it seriously that you don't become complacent um, that you are aware of who you're working with. And I think for, certainly from my point of view, being very, very aware of any kind of psychological manipulation, which does happen, where people try and um, suck you into their story. So to kind of retain that psychological barrier and boundaries to that work is incredibly, incredibly important. And so that's really a big part of the work that you have to undertake when you work in those settings is professional psychological boundaries to your practice. Um, and that's really vital. Because I know, obviously, when you look at kind of famous murders over over the years, there, there are often the cases, aren't there, where you've got one where they say are just pure evil and the other person has come under the spell or has been manipulated is that is that an example of what you're just saying is in people these um serial killers murderers are able to draw people in is that a character a specific characteristic that's unique 
to them. Yeah, it's a really good thing to pick up on there. I think, again, not everyone will be the same because, as I said at the start of the interview, everyone's very, very different and they will manifest very, very differently in how they go about committing their crime. But if you think about those people that have been able to get away with this for so long, and that's why I was actually really interested in the serial offender, my early research, what I was focusing on for my um, initial PhD was I was interested in the emotional intelligence of the serial murderer and that was because I wanted to understand better how someone was able to turn this persona on and off so to have that very glib charming superficial grooming manipulative way of being to lure someone in to their web to be able to kill them but then to be able to go home to their family and be a loving husband, father, friend, colleague, um, takes a very special kind of mindset, a very special kind of person who, who has the desire, the deep desire and the deep need to go and kill, but still want to keep that secure foothold with their family. It's a fascinating mindset. And that's why I wanted to understand it. How do they get to turn that on and off? What's going on there? And to me, it really does come down to that emotional intelligence, that they're emotionally intelligent enough to know when to switch it on and off. I know watching the uh, the Cops That Kill, um, the Wayne Cousins um, first episode that I watched, and you did talk about that, talked about the fact that, you know, he literally had just committed this awful murder and the next thing is in a coffee shop buying his coffee as he always did and then just gets on with his day. And it, that's a really, I guess that's where it goes back to when you asked me, you know, are you interested? I'm like, well, yes, because actually how I couldn't understand how somebody could actually do that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, when I teach this, it's kind of linked to something I teach. Um, so whenever I do public talks on this, because I do a lot of public um, events, and I talk about murder. I've often started a talk by saying, you know, it's midnight, um, a dead body lies before you. What would you do? How would you get rid of that body? Um, and it's really interesting to see how people go about what they would do. How would they deal with that body? <laughs> what would they actually do with it? And you, you hear people talk about the panic first. Um, would they call a friend? Um, what would they do? And I think of it, all the years I've been doing it, I've only ever had one person say they would call the police. <laughs> that seems amazing <laughs> yeah and it just goes to show that we have again that capacity in our mind we go we can go to a different place and want to do something very different very different but how easy would it be for you to then to behave normally after you've done that um it's really fascinating to kind of make sense of where that sense of being able to behave and act in a normal way post having actually having to deal with something like that um yeah, fascinating to try and get your head around. And certainly with Wayne Cousins, as you said, that's what we did see. He was able to do that. But that's partly because he'd replayed it in his mind so many times before he committed the act. And that's part of the serial offenders. They fantasise about what they do. Um, it's not just, again, a single murder for someone who um, maybe is doing it in self-defence and then they are thrown by what's happened. And it's one of the reasons why um, in the programme I did actually say that I believe Wayne Cousins would have gone on to do it again because I think he did actually present as a serial murder, not as a single. So so on that, I know when I was watching uh, watching that Cops That Kill, one of the things that really came to my mind was the fact that we never talked about the family and the fact that obviously Wayne Cousins, he, he could just go back and be completely normal. I mean, you talked about Dark and Light and how you interested in just people. I mean, that for me, that was one of the things I just would feel if it was me how, how'd you miss this you mean if you were his wife yeah. 
how do you miss it? It, it seems, but it's obviously such a personality trait, that, that ability, that emotional intelligence to be able to switch in and out. It seems incredible. Yeah, I think, yeah, again, you're right. I think that they, they have this ability to act, to literally switch on. Again, think of Harold Chipman. So he, when he, what he did came to light, again, it was the same argument. He's the best doctor I've ever had. He's the most caring man. He's a loving husband, loving father. But we know he'd killed over 240 women over his career and potentially a lot more that we don't know about. Um, So he was, again, able to switch that persona on and off and be the loving husband, be the loving father, which is why people, and particularly men, we don't we know very little about females, and there are fewer females um, from a research perspective that we know of, unless they're craftier and <laughs> not being found. But they are essentially blending into society, um, going unnoticed because they are able to to act and kind of to maintain those relationships and that sense of normality in in their work life and and home life. The methods that serial killers have used, have they changed over the years? You know, like with the evolving technology, you know, have you seen it or, or actually are they still very similar? With the introduction of technology, as it is today, certainly with social media, we have to be mindful that all crime and all criminals move with the times. So we are seeing obviously lots of cybercrime happening. And certainly cybercrime isn't my area. Um but there's a whole raft of research, a very fast-moving body of research in the area addressing cybercrime. When it comes to particularly serial murderers using that to their advantage, yes, we're seeing evidence of that happening. Um, certainly the case of Stephen Port is someone that I've written about myself for The Independent. Um, he was a man who used Grinder to attract um, and befriend young men online. Um, and certainly in that article, what I argued was, you know, this is almost like a new age of serial murderer, really. Who, you know, the one that doesn't have to go out looking for their victims, but they can stay sat at home and essentially scroll for the type of victim that they want to have um, and lure them to them. So, yes, we have to be mindful that they do move with the times. And it's an interesting part of criminology, actually, to look at how crime has to move with culture and society and so also take advantage of what's available and certainly that's an obvious way to take advantage of something that would be of use to someone who wants to lure a victim. Is there also an element of that helps us to well people that are investigating um, these serial killers is it easier to find them for that reason too that we have better technology it's kind of works both ways? I don't know if it's easier because often this is it's something we find out about after the fact. It's not something that we, we wouldn't know if someone was being lured to them for that purpose. And what you'll find is because those offenders are so clever, as I said before, often they choose people who are very vulnerable. So um, we know, for example, for a fact that many victims are, for example, prostitutes. And that's because people um, may be... Uh, well they're not going to be reported as missing because that community of people don't want to report that as person as missing because it would then reflect badly on them um they might know about what they were doing so people choose people who are vulnerable so if they're online choosing a vulnerable population we may never know until they slip up or um yeah something untoward happens and we're drawn to the you know pay attention do serial killers confess to their crimes when I worked with offenders, um, some are very proud of what they've done. 
if I'm honest, and want to talk about what they've done. Um, and really, that's not often the main part of the work to start with. So you have to almost shut that conversation down and talk about other things, gain the case history, whereas some, depending again on the type of offender, the type of person as well, just your general personality, will want to talk about what they've done. And very often that's a part of reliving the experience. So again, I often you know, try and explain to people that many of these people have a very, very rich fantasy life. So if they've thought about those crimes for a long time, they would have fantasised about what they were going to do replay that in their head again and again and again actually committed the act and then replayed that again and again in their head and it's that that creates the finesse in terms of how they perfect their techniques in terms of what they've done and then they go on to do it again and maybe enhance their techniques for want of a better phrase things escalate in terms of severity in terms of what they do um so when it comes to um when they're kind of convicted and essentially incarcerated that's potentially the only means they have to relive that is having a new audience so yes they will confess some don't some will not want to speak of it it's very personal very private um some go as far as to commit suicide Harold Chipman again being this again the case example he didn't want to talk about it so we will never know what he thought but you do get that portion of people that want to relive it want to tell the story um and again if you're working with someone like that you have to manage that very very carefully because you're not there to gratify that story or to gratify their needs when it comes to that fantasy so again working very carefully about how you work with that so what's your biggest challenge as a as a researcher in this area um, well, at the moment, I'm doing very little research, particularly on this particular area. Um, all of my work really now is in media, media profiling, so pro profiling of offenders. Um, so I um, keep my hand in the research to keep up to date with what's happening and advances. Um, but very fortunate that I'm actually just getting to do lots of really lovely work with lovely people um, having lovely conversations like this if you can call this conversation lovely which I know is tentative <laughs> um, it's fascinating it's though as we said earlier yeah yeah oh well thank you so much for joining us today thank you so much it's been really really lovely to come in and if you want to find out more about Serena's research have a look in the episode description You've been listening to the Research Reimagine podcast by Nottingham Trent University. For all of the latest news from the research community at NTU, follow us on Twitter at NTU underscore research or sign up to our research newsletter by visiting ntu.ac.uk forward slash research. Thanks for listening.